0: This is a WTOP original podcast.
1: Coming up in this episode of Target USA. A Russian plane crashes in Western Russia, and it supposedly was carrying 65 Ukrainian POWs. Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia is playing with the lives of Ukrainian service members.
0: Putin has crossed a really
1: big Rubicon here. Ambassador Kurt Volker, a distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, joins us to explain how. Coming up on this episode. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. We promised on this episode to dig a little deeper into Paul Whelan's situation in that Russian prison camp, but as has been the case in the last year and a half, we've been overtaken by breaking news. A Russian transport plane was shot down today. That plane either carrying 65 Ukrainian POWs or weapons. It's still unclear what took place. We take a closer look at that and we talk with Ambassador Kurt Volker who is the Distinguished Fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He's also the former U.S. ambassador to NATO. He's going to talk with us about this war, where we are a month away from two years into this war. (laughs) Ambassador Volker Today's news is a plane was shot down uh, or a plane crashed, and we don't know what the situation was in uh, Western Russia and Belgorod. We do know that the Russians say it was a plane carrying Ukrainian POWs, and Ukraine is not saying much at this hour. Um, We don't know what took place there, but can you kind of set the scene for what's taking place in both those countries right now, considering the fact that this war we're 30 days from it being two years, seems to have ground yeah. to a bit of a halt.
0: Yeah, that's right, JJ. Um, so first off, uh, remember the early phase of the war. Russia made a lot of rapid territorial gains. Um, you remember that big column of tanks and things that was pointing at Kiev? Yes. And the Ukrainians have taken back about half of everything that the Russians took uh, early in the war. But as you said, since then, the front lines have been fairly stable. Russia is not really able to fly in Ukrainian airspace, but they do send missiles and drones and they attack cities. And and the Russians commit war crimes every day by attacking civilians deliberately. Uh, They just uh, overnight just hit more apartment buildings uh, in a couple of different cities. Uh, So that's what the Russians are doing. The Ukrainians are both trying to hold the front lines, but then they're also using drones, naval drones and air drones, to go after Russia's logistical supply lines and to go after aircraft and take down, with air defenses, take down missiles and drones that are being fired at them. Uh, This goes on almost every day now. There have been a few prisoner exchanges in the past. There haven't been any for a while, um, but there have been some. And so the idea that this was intended to be some kind of prisoner exchange is plausible, but as you said, we really don't know uh, the facts here. We don't know whether there are actually POWs on that plane or not. We don't know if it crashed or if it was shot down. We don't know if it was an accident by the Ukrainians or if it was something the Russians did themselves. Uh, just a lot of uncertainty here. If it is true that it was POWs on their way to be exchanged, it is it is really tragic. But of course, we're only seeing this kind of tragedy because of Russia's aggression against Ukraine from the beginning.
1: Yeah, that is a key thing that people need to remember, that if Russia hadn't started this war, we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, to the the point that you made about Russia using drones and, and, and missiles mostly, that's pretty much been the case since almost the very beginning of this war, um, or at least uh, not long after the war started that they weren't able to fly in Ukrainian airspace because of Ukrainian weapons and, of course, things they got from the
0: West. Is that right? Um, Yeah, I would say the first um, three to six months of the war was very different. This this was a lot of armor, uh, a lot of vehicles. uh, The Russians were trying to take things by land, and they were trying to fly in Ukrainian airspace. I remember a lot of footage I saw of helicopters and aircraft going down, Uh, in Ukraine, but um, starting with last winter, so 18 months ago, something like that, um, that's when the Russians really shifted gears to just uh, sending bombs and missiles at cities and and drones eventually as well, the Iranian drones that they buy. Uh, That has been the, the basic Russian tactic for the last 18 months is... Uh, unable to move on the ground, unable to fly their aircraft in this guise, uh, they are just sending bombs and drones at cities. Are they, Ukraine, are
1: they making any progress with the weapons that they have been promised and are I presume are getting from the U.S. and the West? Or, or are those weapons even in service yet? Is that in any way contributing to them basically holding the Russians at bay at this point?
0: Yeah, it's a mixed picture. Um, The Ukrainians are making good use of what we have provided to them. Um, The Bradley fighting vehicles, for example, have been very useful. The air defense systems we provided have been critical for the cities in Ukraine. Um, The artillery systems have been very good uh, and uh, very effective at uh, creating a lot of casualties for the Russians when they try to advance. So that, that all has helped. The F-16s that have been promised are still not operational in Ukraine. We haven't heard much about the M1, A1s tanks. We have still not provided the longest range artillery systems that we could do, which would be very important for hitting uh, Russian logistical supply lines and bridges and things further back. Um, So there's a lot that uh, we could still be doing that would be even more useful than we have done thus far. And then another point that's interesting is the Ukrainians have done a lot of their own innovation. Uh, For instance, uh, they're the ones who came up with these naval drones uh, that go at fairly high speed right on the surface of the water. And they have been effective at pushing the Russian Black Sea fleet away from Crimea, away from Sebastopol, uh, so that they're now now having to harbor uh, right in the eastern part of the Black Sea in what is actually Russian territory. And Russia is now even thinking about building another base to replace Sebastopol in a part of georgia that it occupies because it is further away from where the ukrainians were able to get them so that's not western weapons that is something that ukrainians have developed themselves over the last six to eight months
1: if you look at where things stand right now in the u.s congress and with u.s i guess plans to support continue supporting ukraine where does ukraine stand right now itself Uh, are they are they in a bit of a bind right now or is this all going to work out, you think, eventually and they'll get what they need from the U.S.?
0: Well, I've heard reports that the ammunition supply has slowed down uh, as a result of the, the drop in funding. Uh, and that is important for the Ukrainians, that, that it's important for them to maintain the tempo of their defenses uh, along this front line, it's very difficult. But I am confident that the money will be provided. And that's simply because the vast majority of the Republicans and the Democrats in both the House and the Senate support this aid to Ukraine. It's not held up because of disagreements over aid to Ukraine. Sure, there are a few congressmen uh, and maybe even a few senators who don't agree with that, but the vast majority support it. It's held up because of the uh, lack of progress on a border deal. Uh, what the U.S. is going to do to tighten up uh, control of the southern border, but once that is agreed, and that, as you know, there are senators working on that. There's a package that may get voted on next week. Once that's done, that will unlock everything else.
1: Kurt, not long ago, um, I was in Poland, and a, 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 one of the one of the areas that I went to was Krakow. I also went to yeah. Auschwitz and you know, some of those communities that that, that are, are around there. And I went to a Jewish community center, and I was told mm-hmm. that an 85-year-old woman who's volunteers there told a five-year-old girl who came in from Ukraine as a refugee, this 85-year-old woman who was a Holocaust survivor told her, 80 years ago, I was you. And if we don't stop this situation in Ukraine, and in other in, and in other places, 80 years from now you're going to be me standing in front of another five-year-old and yeah. I'm just yeah. it was pretty pretty remarkable to me that several months later this is situation exploded in Israel where some of the same Holocaust type activities, just the violence and desecration of humanity took place there and long long buildup here but I'm wondering how much damage has what? russia vladimir putin and the kremlin done in ukraine with its just disregard for human life done to the the view of the rest of the world on the importance of life and humanity
0: well it's interesting jj because uh putin has crossed uh, a really big rubicon here um there was a point at which you could make an argument that okay russia has national interests as well russia has a uh, belief that you know, it, can, um, it should have a claim to some of these territories that were part of the former Soviet Union. But it has gone way beyond that now. Uh, Putin rejects the idea that there is a separate Ukrainian people. Uh, he, just like Hamas rejects the, Isra- the idea that Israel has a right to exist, uh, Putin doesn't think Ukraine has a right to exist. And in fact, the former president, Medvedev, just the other day, said that the idea of an independent state existing on Russian lands is unacceptable. Uh, Well, these aren't Russian lands, but the, the Russians are denying Ukraine's right to exist both as a country and as a people. That's the kind of thing that goes right along with what we see Hamas doing in Israel. And it also harkens back to the kind of ideology that we had with um, the Nazis and Germany, where they just believed that the Germans were a superior race and they had a right to take over territory of other countries. It's exactly what the Russians are saying now about themselves.
1: One of the things that seems to be a bit disturbing to me is what we're, the, the rhetoric that we're seeing in the political space in the U.S., and I don't want to really get into the, the politics of it, but there was a candidate who has been talking about how the blood supply has been poisoned in this country. And there are some of those same things, some of those, some of that same language that was used back in Hitler's day. Uh, And there are concerns by many people that I've spoken to about the impact of this on people in this country, uninformed and informed people who are essentially Laughing, saying, "Okay, yeah, you know, this is this is where we are." What's your view on that kind of thing? Making this kind of return, in, of all places, the U.S.
0: I know. Yeah, I, I think it's really appalling. I think it is a uh, a frivolousness in dealing with very serious issues. Um, you know, I, I I I would like to think that people saying those things don't really mean it. But even just saying it, it is appalling. Uh, we, we really have to take these things seriously. And, you know, maybe you know, four years ago, eight years ago, first time we heard campaign rhetoric like that, people laughed and thought it was funny. But frankly, it's not funny anymore. Uh, there is too much going on in the world we have to take seriously.
1: And speaking of that, give us a sense of how difficult things must be right now for the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and the U.S. uh, ambassador to NATO. Give us a a sense of how difficult it must be to them, or it might be to them, uh, to deal with Ukraine and to talk to the Ukrainians every day uh, in in light of what's taking place in the U.S., not just the political ideology shenanigans that are going on, but also the reality of what took place and is taking place in Congress in terms of this, I guess, uh, recalcitration when it comes to yeah. Giving money to Ukraine?
0: Yeah, well, first off, um, they're both excellent ambassadors Ambassador Bridget Brink in Ukraine and Ambassador Julie Smith at NATO, uh, two women, uh, both very capable and doing a very good job. The problem is that they don't have clear things to say. Uh, when the, the aid is blocked in the Congress for weeks at a time and we can't say for sure what's going to happen until it does. That puts them in a very difficult position. Uh, it's also very difficult when you have an administration that isn't willing to say our objective is for Ukraine to win and Russian forces to be defeated. We, we settle on something less than that, which is, well, we'll help the Ukrainians for as long as it takes, whatever that means. And that's very unclear. So they are in a very tough position. And I'm sure they're hearing not only from Ukrainians, but from a lot of our European colleagues. At NATO, in particular, who want to see the U.S. leading more and are concerned if they see that these you know, additional military support may not really be forthcoming.
1: Well, Ambassador, just give us a couple of more minutes of your time here. I want to just ask you a couple of questions, not for necessarily personal um, reflections from you, but I certainly want your 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 view of. The time that you spent in your positions, um, you know, the the diplomat positions, the uh, ambassador to NATO and, and everything else that you did as a U.S. diplomat, G- give us a sense of of, of of what you might do now if you were in those positions and how what you might do now might be different from, I guess, what's taking place now. Or, or is there? would there even be an opportunity to do that, I suppose? Difficult question, but what I'm asking is, how has what you learned informed what you would be doing now if you were in that mm-hmm. those positions?
0: Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's important is the U.S. is expected to lead in NATO and expected to lead in the world. And when we do, that's how we leverage support from others. Um, finger wagging and shouting and... Um, denying support or holding back doesn't encourage our allies to do more. It causes them to hunker down, too. So if we want to see our European allies invest more and lean in more, we have to lean in ourselves. So that's one thing. Um, Another is that uh, the rest of the world operates on the basis of hard power. Uh, They see what we do, they see what we don't do, and they make their own calculations. So a lot of what we're seeing now is growing consequences, whether it is Russia's war on Ukraine or the Houthi attacks against U.S. forces in, uh, in Iraq and, and uh, in, in the Middle East region, Iran's intransigence. We, we see this escalation going on uh, because of our lack of willingness to take action. We, we think that we are avoiding escalation by not doing something But in fact, inaction is what is causing the situation to escalate and a firm, strong position and willingness to use force is what would actually put things back in the box. That is a pretty,
1: pretty blunt and straightforward way of saying what's happening. So do you believe there's in the cards any chance the U.S. is going to change that approach to... um, shying away from conflict uh, and trying to de-escalate, but as you said, it's led to escalation because of the way that the rest of the world, especially places like Iran, view what's going on?
0: Yeah, they, they view us as unwilling to do what we are capable of, so they keep pushing the limits of what they do and getting away with it. I do think we might be seeing a bit of a change, even now. Uh, the U.S. strikes against the Houthis, have uh, increased and been more serious and there's been a bit more of a a warning to iran uh, there was the pentagon statement issued yesterday i think it was where he, every time it mentioned the the uh, the people in Iraq who were firing at us, the yeah. Houthis firing at us, Hamas it always pointed out these are Iran-backed entities. So this is a way of, I think, sending a signal to Iran. Maybe at least in that theater, we will be willing to step up a little bit more.
1: Okay, last thing. Anything you want to add that I haven't asked about that you think is important?
0: You know, I was very involved in NATO enlargement uh, in the 1990s and 2000s. I, I was in uh, Central and Eastern Europe as a diplomat in the 90s. I, I worked for uh, Senator McCain in the Senate the first time we ratified Polish, Hungarian and Czech membership in NATO. Then I was in the White House when we organized the Prague Summit, bringing in seven new countries to join NATO. So we, we basically created the conditions of peace and prosperity and democracy that uh, are protecting now over 100 million people in Europe who didn't have it before that. Um, So that, that was a great, successful policy. So I have a lot of experience with NATO enlargement. But I would say that the situation we face today with Ukraine is not like those enlargements we saw in the 90s and 2000s. It's a lot more like the founding of NATO in 1949. When we founded NATO, we had Stalin, we had the Soviet Union, we had just come out of a hot war in World War II, we had a divided Berlin, we had a divided Germany. So by creating NATO and saying we're going to defend our allies in Western Europe, uh, we were putting ourselves out there and taking a risk, knowing that that was the only way to prevent war. And I think that's where we the way we have to look at Ukraine now is the same way. We have to bring them into NATO under difficult circumstances when there is conflict going on in order to prevent a wider war. And we're going to have a Washington summit of NATO this July, the 75th anniversary of NATO. Mm -hmm. And everybody's going to be watching. What do we do about Ukraine? And I think the answer has got to be something like that, where we, we take serious steps to bring them into NATO now.
1: Well, against the backdrop of what's going on um, in the world, as certainly as it relates to Ukraine, that is something that I am very sure to keep my eye on. Ambassador Kurt Volker, thank you for taking time to talk to us.
0: J.J., it's always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, the book is called God, Guns, and Sedition by bruce hoffman and jacob ware
0: we began the book in april 2020 which was pretty much the depths of the COVID lockdown and what i had noticed is literally within days of the lockdown in mid-march all of a sudden all these outlandish conspiracy theories began to circulate on the internet and on social media Um, blaming the Jews, for example, blaming immigrants, uh, targeting Asian-Americans, targeting African-Americans, targeting immigrants.
1: And the situation in the U.S. has gotten worse. We talk with Bruce Hoffman. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, Jay Green at WTOP.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at slash email. I'm JJ Green. And this is Target USA, the National Security Podcast.